Okay, everybody, um, there's a little bit of backstory to this episode. I actually taped this a couple of months ago, and uh, we taped this episode because we had read a, a New York Times article called The Secretive Company That Might End Privacy As We Know It. I know it's a dramatic link baiting headline. Um, and the story was about a company called Clearview AI. They do facial recognition, and they sell that software to government agencies and police departments, and they do that, obviously, with good intent to try to help uh, catch criminals. Well, the morning uh, I interviewed him happened to be, in terms of timing, the day after George Floyd was tragically murdered. And I'm using the term murdered because it uh, it felt like murder. It is murder, and it's unacceptable. I think we all understand that. So uh, once the protests started in America and we were watching these anti-racism protesters, we decided we might hold the interview because it didn't feel like the right time. And uh, maybe things would settle down and people could think about the software as something that would theoretically help police departments um, as opposed to maybe helping them do something like identify peaceful protesters. And, and so we've really been thinking about when is the right time. Well, just this past Sunday, last night, um, and uh, this was August 24th, 2020, a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake was shot in the back and tasered by police officers in Wisconsin. He was unarmed. And uh, he remains in critical condition, and we're praying uh, that for him and for his family that he pulls through. And we saw it, and I, and I tweeted about it. And listen, this is coming from somebody who's got a family in law enforcement um, and have great respect for the police, but this was not the way this should have gone down, and it's heartbreaking. And, and I'm, I'm now at the point where I talk to my team about it. It tragically feels like there's never going to be a right time to release this episode. Uh, and we really have a lot of work to do on race in this country. And we're dedicated to that just like you are. Um, and we felt we needed to put this episode out for you to listen to it because it brings up a lot of um, issues. And in fairness uh, to Juan, uh, who's the founder, he appeared uh, on the podcast and in good faith, he came on and he answered very difficult questions for me. Uh, and I think I actually believe he has good intentions. I, I, that's a belief I have. Uh, you might disagree, but I think it's a very important topic. Facial recognition is a very important topic. The world is changing. Uh, and we know every time one of these technologies comes out, there's pros and there's cons to it, whether it's GPS, which can track you or can get you to your location on time, or it's facial recognition, which could catch a criminal or be, be you know, used to track a peaceful protester in a bad way and compromise people's privacy. These are important discussions. We're going to have them here. Um, and I hope this uh, this episode is taken uh, in the spirit in which I and the team at This Week in Startups that works very hard on this podcast intended, which is to discuss important issues. Uh, Black Lives Matter. We all know that. And uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash twist and Coors Light. When you want to reset this summer, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. We're taping uh, late May 2020, somewhere south of Market Street in San Francisco, in a socially distanced, empty office where my investment company launch once was a beehive of activity. And now I come to this office for 
the last two or three months, and it's empty. And there's a layer of dust that we clean off, and nobody has been to work here in months. It's a very weird feeling. But I know. It is a weird time, isn't it, Jason? It's a, it's a very weird time. And our guest today is Juan Tontat, who you just heard. He's in New York City, socially distancing, I hope. That's correct. Very and, distanced. Uh, Juan Tontat is the CEO and co-founder of Clearview AI which is involved in facial recognition in order to help law enforcement catch criminals. The company has had a, a little bit of, um, let's call it uh, controversy or notability around the technology and the fact that it exists. My opening preamble, this technology has existed for a long time, facial recognition, and anybody who's involved in a crime uh, or a victim of a crime, I should say, uh, would very much like to have the perpetrator caught. And if they were caught on a CCTV, a closed-circuit television uh, system, which we have all over the place now in cities, uh, London has, I think, more CCTVs <laughs> than people, uh, you would want that person caught and brought to justice. However, uh, we all know that any system that uh, can be abused will be abused, and you don't want people having access to a tool like this who might be a stalker or might want to harass somebody. And certainly the same technology used by a group of people in an authoritarian country, let's say China, could be used to round up hundreds of thousands and millions of people in a certain demographic to be sent to re-education camps. A re-education camp uh, in China might be viewed by the majority of the Western world as more akin to a prison or a concentration camp where people are tortured and where people are starved and where people are abused because of their views of the world or something as simple as religion. So with that backdrop, um, Juan reached out to us actually and said, hey, I'd love to talk. Uh, you know, I guess you're a fan of the podcast and you, you wanted to come on and talk about your technology and, and what you're working on. I'm curious, um, you have some notable backers, uh, Peter Thiel and my friend Naval. How much of the controversy around your company do you think is because of Peter Thiel's involvement? Because <laughs> he's such a uh, he's such a lightning rod, and we've got such a polarized right and left kind of world right now um, that I think you know when Peter invests in something, it kind of can bring a little bit of lightning uh, to the founder. How, how much of it is related to Peter Thiel being a bit radioactive these days? Uh, thanks, Jason, for having me on your show. And a very uh, long preamble about the issues we are facing and a lot of the controversy. So, you know, Peter's a great investor. He's a super smart person. We all know that. But I think fundamentally, there is something controversial about facial recognition, also privacy, the privacy debate, and its use in policing. So some of the misconceptions that are out there is this is going to be a tool that's used to... Um, uh, without any oversight regulation or in a real-time way. So in China, they have a lot of real-time surveillance, but the way Clearview AI is used, it's an uh, after-the-fact investigative tool. So that's the misconception that a lot of people have. Yeah. So when there's probable cause for a crime, so your car window was smashed and there's a person in surveillance footage and you don't know who it is, this is a tool to help get a lead. You still have to obey all the protocols that are in place. And when we think about our technology, and how powerful it is. We always think about how best to apply it. So it has, you know, the best upside we can think of. 
in terms of solving crime, but also minimizing the downside and abuse. So, you know, we're kind of living in the future. We have over 2,400 police agencies in the United States using it. And we've had so many crimes from child sexual abuse being solved, uh, a lot of murder cases, uh, financial fraud rings that are massive. And it's really our belief that the upside completely outweighs the downside. Um, we haven't had any instances of abuses or people wrongfully arrested from the technology, which is the number one fear that people have. What is the what does it cost a police department to have this? How do you charge them? Do you charge them a yearly fee? Do you charge them per police officer? Do you charge them by the the, the density of the city? Do you charge them by the search? How does it work? Yeah. So right now it's uh, a SaaS business, uh, depending on how many seats or licenses a police agency wants. And it varies if they're federal, local or state. Uh, but it's pretty inexpensive, especially compared to what's come previously. So ballpark. previously, yeah, ballpark, you know, $2,000 uh, a year per officer, all the way down to be more inexpensive. Got uh, it. For state local. And we you might only the, need to have one or two officers in a, in a police department to have access to this. You don't want all police officers to have access to this. You want it limited to like detectives or a very specific group of people that are vetting the searches, correct? Correct. So right now it's really used with detectives for after the back, after the fact crime. So they might be in a crime center. They might be at the financial fraud division of a police department. They might be, you know, investigators who uh, use all different kinds of tools to build cases. So when a detective in, is it public which regions have it? Or is it part of like their spend, like that they report that they use this? I would assume yeah, they have I, to. I, there, there's a Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. So People have to comply with that when it comes to the use of their tools. And, Got it. Uh, what so what's use. an example of a, a jurisdiction using this and having great success? That's uh, it's used to by you know, over 2,400. Yeah. So we've had people in the New York region use it to great success. Um, and So when somebody uses it in the New York region, let's just say somebody's using it in Albany or something. I'm just picking a place. Um, some town, New York, New York, in some town, New York, a detective wants to use it. Now, when they take a picture, uh, they, they get a picture from a, from a drop cam of uh, somebody or an S-cam or something, security camera, of somebody who broke into a house. They put it into the database and you record that they did that search. Do they need to have a, in this case, do they need to have a warrant like somebody would need for uh, getting somebody's phone records? Or it's, there's no need for a warrant because this is all public data, correct? Yeah, correct. So we had one of the best legal minds, Paul Clement. He was Solicitor General under Bush, and he wrote uh, a legal reading of the Fourth Amendment and that, uh, how Clearview is used. So all the data inside Clearview is publicly available on the internet. So it's like a Google search for faces. Right. You put in a face, you get you know a lead. It's like Googling someone's name, right? right? You have to make sure you get the right person. And then uh, you build your case. Then you go to the, the judge and say, I have all the evidence uh, that this person was here. He lives in the New York region. Uh, this is a car that was stolen. Um, and we now have his name. Can we go forward? So it's before, you know, um, anything's open. So it's a Which is what a detective would do. They would take the screen grab of that person breaking into the house and they would go to the local bar. They would go to the local cafe. They would go to the local grocery store, take out the picture and say, hey, you're the, the bartender, you're the checkout person at this coffee shop. Have you ever seen this person? And the person says, yeah, that guy comes by yeah, every exactly. Tuesday. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's more, much more efficient than going around, and it's much more accurate. So the tool is so much more accurate than the human eye now. So you reduce all these people that might be pulled aside. We've had 
one really interesting story from Alabama where they were looking for African-American woman, maybe in her 30s, who uh, beat up a grandma. And they were able to look at the surveillance footage, run the photo, and they actually found mugshots of African-American male. Turns out they were dressed up as a woman. And they stopped them from going wow. through and pulling over instead of yeah so it's the opposite of what people expect it's so accurate that it would stop them from you know interrogating five or six african-american women of that age so i think that uh the accuracy is one of the selling points uh, because it's not just about locking up bad people but also making sure that the innocent uh are not wrongfully detained or arrested and how would you prevent a police officer, a detective rather, in this any town, New York, from taking a picture of their, I don't know, ex-girlfriend, ex their 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 ex-wife, whatever it is, or just somebody they wanted to harass, a friend of theirs, ex-wife or something, and putting it into the system and saying, show me every picture of this person, and then finding out, oh, this uh, woman who I used to date was is now in a photo on somebody else's Instagram that you scraped or Facebook you scraped or some other public photo and then using that to harass them. How would you prevent that from happening? Just like we see in every detective novel or every crime procedural television show, you know, somebody's like, hey, I know a detective, I know a private investigator, I can get them to run that license plate, right? Like the running of the license plate for a friend or for some mafia guy who leans on a cop to run a license plate. How do you pre prevent that from happening? with your software? Yeah, it's a great question. And our goal is to get the best out of the technology and minimize the abuse completely. So for each police department that uses it, they are nominated a um, someone who audits the logs of every search. And they can opt to say, every search must have a reason or a case number with it. And these that kind of transparency where the police officers, they know, they're trained, these are the searches, this is what you can use it for, there's not evidence in court. And by the way, please get us an administrator so they so they can. So oversee they're aware that there's an audit log. Absolutely, and I think that's the key thing here is to uh, you know build systems that are secure and can be audited, and that just knowing that exists can make everyone feel at ease in terms of. Yeah, how I mean, you would be less it. likely to run the license plate if you knew that it was tagged to your login. Now, of exactly. course, the issue would be is if there's a shared login. And a bunch of different people could use it. Maybe somebody could sneak it yeah, in and say, I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also ways to get around shared logins. All these logins are from the same IP or device. We can detect that. Right. Eventually, uh, I think that because of the power, power of facial recognition, there'll be, we, you know, how you have two factor authentication, which we do have now for our service. There'll be three factor, you know, your email, your text, but also your face. So I ah, think that. So the person that, doing the search would then have to turn on the webcam, have their picture taken to say, I am a detective, I'm Detective Calacanis, and I'm doing the search, and my picture is taken by the computer that does the search. Yeah. That we, haven't, we don't have that yet, but uh, we've thought about- That would be about, pretty great. I, I think that's going to be the future of a lot of authentication, because you have account takeovers with SMS and email, but it's hard to take over a face. So- yeah. Uh, yeah. Even the and SMS so is pretty hard to do. I mean, let's face it, like who's giving their it is phone hard. away? Yeah, I mean, but you know, people do a, get- People who get targeted, they get, you know, the call to Verizon. And actually, we see this a lot. We have a lot of financial fraud detectives. And one of the cases we helped solve with was $35 million in fraud that was recovered uh, between this agency and a big bank. And it was 19 people. And they were getting the photos of the people stealing identities from the ATM after wow. the crime is committed. 
So I would go to the, the criminal would go to a bank and say, hi, I'm Jason Calacanis. Um, this is my social, this is my phone number. Uh, and they'd say, all right, show me your ID. And they would make a fake ID, but that have your face on it. Yes. Right. And so they would steal the ID, withdraw all the money from the bank or the ATM. And these fraud rings are massive. And uh, we were just shocked that 35 million in fraud, that's just one case that we know of. That's and incredible. it's all after the fact. So when we kind of think of uh, the impact of the technology and the uh, ramifications of all this, imagine if that's a deployed at scale everywhere. Do you have and a then- central log file? In other words, I hear that you have like an ambassador on the local police force or a, a budsman, as it were, or an auditor. But do you keep a log? Like, in other words, if that any town, Albany, did these searches, can they, is that log file something that you maintain as well? So if they try to alter their log file, there's some conspiracy locally, you still have the backup to it? Or do they maintain their log? Right now, it's a SaaS service on our service. It's very hard to deploy on-prem because we have billions and billions of photos, but we do not look at the logs. It's up to the agency to enforce their So you don't keep log. a log of their what their usage is? Yeah, we don't look at it, but it's it's well, on, no, but do you keep server. it? Is what I'm saying. Do you keep? Do they? Because then that would be a two layer of it. The, the local police department knows, and the police officers using that system know that there's a local level. But then, if there was, like we've seen many times in the United States, there's a conspiracy at a local level where DAs and police are in cahoots. Mm-hmm. Then they would know. Hey, wait a second. Uh, Clearview has a log of everything. Do you have yeah. a log of everything in case there's local abuse like that or not? Um, yeah, it's all on our servers at this point in right. time. So you would know. Crimps. But we don't, it's not our job to really police the police. We right. think we But a judge, if a judge came and said to Clearview, hey, listen, we've got a dirty cop and a dirty prosecutor in this region, which has happened before where they've railroaded mm-hmm. people. Um, yeah. We need to see the Clearview logs and see what they did. You would be able to produce that. We would comply with any legal orders. Uh, we want to be compliant all with right. the law. When we get back so, from this quick yeah. break, I want to know. What does facial recognition still not do right? What are the false positives and what are the um, things that have not yet been solved, if any, with facial recognition? When we get back on this week in startups. All right, let's get down to brass tacks. I've got $50 to you from LinkedIn Jobs. The market is coming back. I know it's really weird to say, but people are actually hiring. Because people, entrepreneurs, are resilient and they figure things out. They figure out how to save their businesses. And I'm going to give you $50 towards hiring that next great hire. And we got an amazing testimonial from one of our listeners, Jay, who is the founder of uh, something called 10 Golden Rules. It's a boutique digital marketing agency. And he used our $50 credit for the first job post, which I'm going to give you the secret URL for in a moment. Well, he used that and he put up an account manager position and he quickly received, and we hear these stories all the time about LinkedIn jobs, over 150 qualified applications, not 150 noisy applications, which makes your life miserable, qualified. And after identifying his two top targets, Jay noticed that he shared mutual connections on LinkedIn with both of them. So, boom. He can go vet those hires. And that's the number one thing that I see founders don't do. They don't vet. They don't do reference checks. Those are built into LinkedIn. We know that he hired his favorite candidate over Zoom, and it's worked out great. Congratulations to Jay. Be like Jay. There are over 690 million people waiting for you on LinkedIn right now to do that work, to join your team. I want to give you 5-0, $50 right now, LinkedIn.com slash twist. 
That's right. Go to linkedin.com slash twist to get $50 off. Terms and conditions apply because they're giving you $50. Because you listen to this podcast, the greatest podcast in startup history, linkedin.com slash twist. Thank you, LinkedIn, for helping me hire so many great people. I cannot thank you enough. It is the best. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, Wonton Tad is with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of Clearview AI. You may have read about them in the press. Um, and uh, the New York Times piece in January of this year, 2020, the secretive company that might end privacy as we know it, uh, kind of painted you out to be a bit of a Bond villain. How, what was the response to that piece like? And do you feel the New York Times piece was sensational, fair, unfair, and in what ways? Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, it's a very interesting process going from a company that had no media exposure to being on the front page of the New York Times. And it's an honor to be at the center of the debate now and to talk about privacy. So at the end of the day, you know, we're very honored to be at the forefront of this debate. And I think that regarding the New York Times, they were uh, actually extremely fair. When we're going into it, I wasn't very sure of what to do and how to respond, but um, we ended up responding to Kashmir Hill and her questions and engaging with it. And we thought we made the story a lot better off. We could show her a lot of examples of uh, a lot of success stories from Indiana State Police, FBI, Homeland Security, et cetera. So uh, it's totally worth engaging with the media. And since then, there's been a lot of controversy. But at fundamentally, this is something that's such a great tool for society. And, uh, you know, you kind of glossed over the question I asked you at the top, which was how much of this blowback do you think is because Peter Thiel's name is associated with it, obviously him being a controversial character. Do you get a little blowback from that? Were you a Thiel fellow? No, I wasn't a Thiel fellow. But how did you meet Peter I, Thiel? I met him in Silicon Valley, but I think that it's a small part of the controversy around it. I think there's a lot more around the privacy and the law enforcement part of it. So, um, Think about it. It was a shock to some people, and I understand that as well. But overall, like it's been. But he was a seed investor. Um, he put 200K into the company. It's not like he's on the board of the company, correct? No, he's not. Right. And then you raised another, you've raised about 7 million from investors. Any of those like VC firms, like a proper VC firm or no? Yeah, we have some institutional investors for the Series A. And who um, led them? Yeah, it's a firm here in New York City, and we've also had... Which one? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to put... They don't want to have yeah. their name out there as an investor or something? I think it's no, a pretty no, savvy investment. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, we're, we're very thankful to a lot of investors. They've been very supportive uh, behind the scenes, and they really believe in the mission of the company, which is to reduce crime and fraud you know, all across the United States. So, Wait, did people, you mention who the... Is it Keurig? Kiranaga partners? Yeah, Kiranaga were part of the seed and the Series A. So, Got it. Um, They're the lead. Yeah, so what was interesting about uh, all the feedback is... I've never even heard of that firm. Uh, we have two different storylines here. So there's a lot of the things that are in the public around the privacy, which people forget. This is all publicly available information. This is anything you can find in a Google search, right? There's nothing controversial about Google. No, but let, let's ask. Let me let, let's um, answer the question about what facial recognition um, hasn't figured out yet. There's been a lot of um, race has been inserted into the facial recognition discussion because certain instances of facial recognition software were um, better at identifying certain uh, ethnicities than others. I'm curious, being a neophyte in this. 
is there an actual issue where Irish people look more similar that to each other than say Italians and that's actually an issue for facial recognition or do you in your estimation as an expert on this running a company on it was the issue that the people who made the first ones were white males in Silicon Valley who didn't take into account maybe the characteristics of other ethnicities? Yeah, what I would say now, and I'd love to uh, put you through a demo so you yeah. can see the software, is that we've created a technology that is way more accurate than anything before. It's better than the human eye. It's You can search out of billions and billions of photos, and it picks out the right person from different angles, with beards, with glasses, and we made sure to train it on every ethnicity. So that's some of the problems. But, wait, but that to, my, to my question, what, what was that initial problem set, do you think, when you look at it? Was it that the people building, you know, Microsoft or Google's or whatever companies it was would just had a blind spot to an ethnicity or is it in fact that Irish people all look the same? No, it, I, everyone's unique. That's the funny thing. There, there's 7 billion or 8 billion people in the world. Everyone's face is unique. But are some are some races more unique than others, in other words, I guess is the I question. I don't think so, unless you have an identical twin, like everyone has a unique face. And what right. happened, I think, is the earlier companies uh, in the super early days, they would not even use neural networks. They would actually just measure the distance between the eyes in a manual way. And then you had the neural network phase. And what we did is we made sure that the training set had people of all different races in it. And that was part of why ours is even more accurate. Because a lot of the training sets that people get are just uh, celebrity training sets. So they're not uh, fully representative of the whole population. So I'll just show you how accurate Wasn't there something with Face ID for Apple where I think Asian people, uh, Asian uh, folks were able to unlock each other's phones? Wasn't that like the, yeah, the, the I mean, weakling? Sure, I can't remember the a, story. That was a headline. Uh, that was a so, headline, yeah. Was it an accurate headline or was it just like the I, press... We, I, I don't know, but yeah. I think, I've used Apple ID and it's, it's been pretty accurate. Well, the um, question is if your friend who was also Vietnamese used it, would they have a... Yeah. yeah. Well, my sister doesn't unlock my phone. So <laughs> it's pretty good. So um, I can just give you a demo. So I think what really happened is we basically solved the issue of accuracy because that's been something that's been an issue before in the past, but we've got kind of like broke the sound barrier. So I'll show you a demo right now, Jason. Yeah, Great. I'll just share it on the screen. Uh, and people can see how it works. So here uh, is how the web version of Clearview works. And um, you can just upload a photo. So I took a screenshot of you from before. There you go. Right? There we go. And, um, All right. So for people who are listening, um, he's doing a search on the Clearview.ai website. He uploaded a picture of me in a leather jacket looking like uh, some... Irish uh, <laughs> loan shark from uh, Hell's Kitchen. And so, uh, she found the photos of the, somebody made business cards. Uh, mm -hmm. And so check uh, this out. There's Here's a picture me. of me uh, for Phil Helmuth's home game when I played at Phil Helmuth's home game and they put me in a caricature. Uh, so there's this is a bunch of photos of me. 565. And we'll, we'll find yeah, some. I'm a public figure, it. so it's. Yeah, there's no false positives. There I should don't know be. If you yeah, it's kind of hard. And then you say. can click on the other person if you don't remember who they are. Right. Uh, so so this would be something I would love to have is the ability to zip through and see these photos. But I can do this. Can I do this on Google reverse image search? Or is that not doing facial recognition? That's just doing the specific image. 
Yeah, they're doing exact image search. So exact image reverse if search. If your face is in a different angle or your face is... Um, is there a public... Uh, is there a public uh, facial recognition service that I can use? Does Amazon provide one? All Amazon provides is an API uh, called Amazon Recognition. So you still have to, uh, you'd have to try it yourself and think it works pretty well, but it doesn't have a data set. And well, it I mean, it's have your direct competitor. Interface. I mean, does it, does it work well, they're not all? really. Yeah. yeah, they're not really a direct competitor. Like I said, they just sell an API. They're not selling a product to law enforcement. So, Got so they, they developer, but you'd if have you to hire send them developer. a photo, they will then look for photos on the web that they've scraped? No, they would only look for photos in a database you would provide. Ah, so that, that's the key difference is you have the database. So basically, everyone in the space previously has had matching software they sell as an API. So it's very hard if you're a, a user, like in law enforcement, to just get started. So let me ask you a legal question here. Um, yeah. And I'm not a lawyer, but I'll ask, a, I'll, I'll ask it anyway, and we'll, we'll kind of work backwards. So I publicly put that photo uh, that you're showing of my incubator class by the Golden Gate Bridge on my blog. You have it mm -hmm. in your database. You never asked me permission to have it in my database. It's a, it's a copyrighted photo on my website. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you to remove it, will you remove it from your database? So we have, uh, we comply. And then why with, didn't you uh, ask for my rights to it? Well, there's two parts to that. Yeah. So there's a fair use. I'm not uh, um, speaking completely as a lawyer here, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going into too much. But this is the thing. It's fair use. And this is in also, it's also in Google search engine. Okay. Right? So but just because Google index. has it doesn't mean you get to have it. So do but Google you, you believe the web fair for works, trailing. You, you believe that fair use gives you the ability to take my photo and put it in your database that you took you scraped yes, from my well, site. And, and then same with Google and all other search engines. If you were to say uh, remove that, uh, then there'd be no Google, there'd be no Bing. There'd no, be I no know, but do, but do I have the legal right to ask you to remove it or not? So yeah, we do comply with all privacy laws. That what if I asked you to remove all the photos of me yeah, that like weren't even are, mine? Am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to opt out of your service? Yeah, so we do comply with CCPA, GDPR, and other, you know, what, what uh, is that? laws. CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act. So anybody GDPR. in California can email you and say, here's my name and my photo. I want to have all photos, all 500 of those photos removed. Yes, the, we want to be compliant with every law that's out there. So, so a savvy criminal, knowing mm -hmm. that this existed could send you a letter and say, remove all my photos. Or just somebody as a privacy person. Do people do that, actually, in reality? Do people Yeah, there's some you... people who do. Some people really? who do, yeah. yeah. Oh, you hear that sound. You know what time it is. That's the sound. It's that crisp Coors Light. That can of crisp Coors Light opening because you've been on five, six, seven, eight Zoom calls a day just like me, and you're losing your mind, and you need to relax. And you need to relax with a crisp, cold Coors Light. You close that laptop, you close your Dell laptop, and you just sit back. Maybe you put on a Netflix, a Disney, watch The Mandalorian for the second time. Maybe you hang out and chill with your friends, socially distance, and you crack open that Rocky Mountain cold Coors Light. Yes, you know, born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, crisp, and only 102 calories. Very important for me because, you know, I've been hitting that Peli Peloton and I'm trying to lose weight. So I got to go with the Coors Light. It's so crisp. It's so delicious. I tell you, I work so hard. You guys know how hard I work on this podcast and in life. And then that five o'clock whistle, six o'clock whistle blows. Yeah, just close the laptop. 
I crack open a cold one. It's brewed at the Ice Cold Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado, where they were made to chill. So close that laptop and chill out with a crispy Coors Light. Uh, there's no doubt. Summer's totally different. We know that. Seems like everything's been canceled. You know what hasn't been canceled? That crisp, cold Coors Light. So go ahead. It's okay. You do a social distance hike. You come back and you crack open that crisp Coors Light. And you can even get Coors Light delivered right now. Just go to get.coorslight.com. It's that simple. G-E-T. Get.coorslight.com. And you'll find a local delivery option like I did. And whoop, that 12-pack comes. And I crack it open. You ready? You want to hear it? There it is. Coors Light Mountain Cold Refreshment. Made to chill. Of course, as always, I want you to celebrate responsibly. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, everybody, if you're posting your pictures on the internet publicly, uh, you can be 100% certain that they are in a database uh, in the Communist Republic of China's uh, secret police database. You can be sure Putin has them. And in all likelihood, Clearview AI has a copy of them and the FBI as well. Everybody is scraping publicly available data, <clears throat> but Clearview AI is doing it as a SaaS service for local police departments so that they can uh, solve crimes. They are not doing it as a public service. You cannot subscribe to this as an individual. Um, can a detective, uh, I'm sorry, a private investigator subscribe and give you money? Uh, we considered it in the beginning, but it's something we're not doing. Why? Because we want to make sure that it's for law enforcement. There's a lot more procedures there and uh, regulatory oversight. And, you know, people don't want to um, abuse it as much. If, if a law enforcement official does, their whole career is on the line. And so we made the decision just to stick to law enforcement. But private investigators do want to use your software. I'm sorry. I think a lot of people want to use the software, um, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't mean they get to. Uh, because everything we do, we have to think about what the implications are and how it's used and what's the upside and the downside. So, all right. In all my conversations with Google, they said, listen, Matt Cutts would say, if you don't like the way we're indexing and using your data, you have the option to opt out of being in the index. Mm -hmm. So your um, defense of what you're doing has been thus far uh, fair use and, hey, Google's using it. Google's doing it. Google's doing it. And that is true, but it's also true that Google will put a robots, they will respect a robots.txt saying, do not scrape our site. Mm -hmm. So if a website that was a social network or Flickr said, hey, we're publicly information, but we don't want to be indexed in search engines, they could opt out of being in Google, but they could not opt out of being in your service, correct? Sure, we do comply with robots.txt for our open web crawler for the millions of other sites we do scrape. And the other thing is with Google, you can't- You don't do that with Instagram and Facebook. Sure, we, we have, but we're only accessing publicly available information. And that's right, but if they said belief. we want to opt out of it, this is where I think your argument is challenged. You know, you say Google's allowed to do it, but Google respects the robot.txt. What you're telling me is you respect the robots.txt except in cases where it's publicly available information, which means you're not respecting robots.txt. Yeah, but the courts have ruled in LinkedIn versus HiQ very clearly. Okay, but to be clear, you're not taking the Google but the, approach. Uh, uh, yeah, but the other approach is this. Can I go to Google and say, please remove these links of myself that I don't like? Today, on this day, you cannot say remove these articles that I don't like on other people's sites. So if you're another site that is a publisher, and they publish the photo of you. Well, you right don't to be like. forgotten in the U in the EU is giving people that right, is it not? 
yeah, that's that's why we're compliant with GDPR. Now, Got if it. you if you use the right to be forgotten with Google and apply an opt out request, they don't always satisfy that. That's you can't true. just get your stuff removed. So right. there is a little bit of judgment that comes into place. I think your point that a criminal could go in there and remove their information, there is a trade-off. So Google doesn't just take you out of an index or take your links out if you don't like them, right? Um, Say there's a link of you that you don't like, an article that someone published. How do you get a lot of those? Yeah. No, I mean, you're you're not going to be able to do that. There's freedom of speech, exactly. But if it's your server and your if it's your server and your serve the service you're providing vis-a-vis Flickr, or if I just had a small website, let's say I had a website for people uh, who were as a photographer, it was a social network for a specific group of people, uh, and a specific ethnic group of people. And they said, hey, you can't search our TXT, you can't index us, Clearview. You'd be like, okay, I respect that. But if it was Instagram, you'd say, we don't respect that. That's just to be clear. You don't respect the fact that Instagram said, don't scrape our stuff. Yeah, we have custom crawlers for certain sites. You and believe you have to remember, you're within this is, fair use to do that. Yeah, and also um, within all the case law that's happened, LinkedIn versus IQ. And finally, if you take the use case of this technology and the upside to what it's providing, we're taking public information, we're solving crimes with it, we're saving children. Uh, there's a lot of really good upside that people are not talking about or thinking about. So when you take all that into context, it's a very positive thing overall for society. Got it. Uh, and are there things that face facial recognition has not gotten perfect yet? Yeah, it's always and, and what's left. Yeah, yeah. I think what we've gotten to now is we at Clearview have developed such an accurate technology uh, that can pick people at, and that searches over three billion faces in the data set and can pick you out perfectly, no false positives, uh, to the point where um, it can be used now for uh, so many good things. But you, you, your facial recognition technology is software that you've written, or you're using some open source software. What, what's the state of it? Yeah, so we developed our own algorithm uh, to to do the matching. We also made our own database to search as vectors. So each face we turn into 512 points, and then we made a database. What's an example of those, those vectors for people who don't understand that concept? Yeah, so so we want to make sh- uh, take the image of a face, maybe, and we resize it to 110 by 110 pixels, and then we convert it into all these different points, the interesting points around the face. And then we search that uh, throughout other 3 billion plus uh, vectors, and we can do that you know, pretty quickly. So that's the other technology we developed. We have developed our own crawlers and search engine, which is really hard to do. But when we talk um, about those vectors, what's an example that a human could understand? Is it the distance between eyes is the one people typically give? Is it the the length of a person's nose? Is it the the forehead? I mean, what what are the what vectors are you trying to? Is the neural network trying to understand? Yeah. To so matches? in the early uh, days of facial recognition, people would measure things manually. Things the difference between the eyes, etc. What we do is we have a ton of examples of one person, say like yourself, Jason, and then a uh, hundred or a thousand examples of George Clooney and. A thousand examples of Brad and can, Pitt. Can a computer then, pick me and Brad Pitt yet? Because we this happens all the time. When I'm walking <laughs> down the street and people ask for. A I selfie. know they can't. Yeah, yeah, they can't. Yeah. So and it just learns the things that are different between um, these uh, training examples. And then when you have a new face it hasn't seen before, it kind of puts it in a different category. Got it. So, so when the when the neural network learns these 500 photos of Jason, these 500 f- photos of Clooney, these 500 photos of Brad, mm-hmm. then when 
you know, 500 photos of Juan show up for testing. It's like, we know it's not those three people. Exactly. And it puts them in a different uh, coordinate space, so to say. That's what it's 512 dimensions. It's a stupid space. question, but can't you run your vector and algorithms against an Instagram photo, mm -hmm. but not scrape it as such and not put it into your database, but just keep the vector data? It's And then possible. point to it. Yeah, I mean, but that's what Google does as a search engine. It downloads the whole internet, and then it makes an index of all common keywords that you do that point to the original web page. So, yeah, you do have to store it on a technical level in order to search it. But if you were to process it and then never store the photo, but store the, let's call it the metadata, the 500 mm -hmm. vectors, you would have a uh, your own conception of what this image is that you took from my site process, but never actually permanently stored. In other words, it was in short-term memory, it was in a short-term cache. You don't mm -hmm. actually have a copy of the photo. You have a pointer to the photo. If it gets removed, then you can't be helped by it, but you have this com composite of it. Would mm -hmm. that not be a way to route around this issue of the, the, the scraping issue? Yeah, and we believe we're doing everything 100% compliance with the law. And you know, Google has a cache of each web page it crawls as well. So You can opt out maybe, of the cache too, yeah. That's another... Yeah, we have the same thing we do. If your page is deleted, we have a place where you can uh, opt out of the cache. I notice on Reddit now, um, the deleting of the web is such a acute issue, deleting of objects on the web, that there are these mirroring sites. And what these mirroring sites do, and I don't know who runs them, but I'm mm -hmm. guessing they're run out of jurisdictions where it's very hard to pursue folks, uh, i.e. Russia or North Korea, et cetera. Um, they will look at, somebody posts a photo like this, you know, one of these Karen videos or something, and they know it's gonna get taken down or if there's a potential of that. And it just makes a copy of it, mirrors it, and then they automatically put like three mirrors to it. It's a pretty mm -hmm. interesting thing that's occurring in the world. Could you not mirror the, could you not scrape the mirrors that are exist in the world as opposed to scraping the primary sites? Or do you do that? Yeah, we have an open web crawler that just goes from site to site, you know, millions of different domains that's continuously finding websites with uh, photos on it and indexing it. So. Yeah, they, these bots that do it are pretty interesting as a concept of just anything that get, and we we also have the what's the web archive called um, here in San Francisco? Archive.org. Archive.org, the Wayback Machine. I found so many old episodes of Calacanis Cast and my magazine in there. Somebody had PDF one of my early magazines. I was like, I didn't give them the rights to do this. And it's like, yeah, they just mirror stuff that's going to disappear uh, on the web. So. What is the acute issue that's not been solved for facial recognition? That we still haven't, I still haven't gotten kind of an answer on that of like what's left. I mean, you say it could be improved, but is there something specific that's hard? Like are masks hard? Are sunglasses hard? Are wigs hard? What's hard? Yeah, sunglasses uh, can, can be a little bit of a problem and masks, but it works pretty well if you cover your mouth or beard. Uh, if you have a beard, it matches you to non-beard photos, different angles. So there's always room for improvement, but my overall point is it's reached the tipping point in terms of being extremely accurate, useful. What so do CIA agents and other spies and people who want to avoid facial recognition do to avoid it? Well, uh, you'd have to ask them, but I think they stay out well, of focus. Well, you have to, <laughs> well, I mean, you have to go then reverse it. So when somebody's on the lam and they're on the run, when 
you know, police are looking for them and they decide they're going to wear a wig, they're going to put on a prosthetic nose, they're going to put on sunglasses, they're going to wear a fake mustache. Does that stuff actually work or not? That's sort of what I'm getting at. It, and then, because you depends. must get this request from people where they're like, this person's on the lam, but we know they're using a disguise. Yeah, we've had a crazy uh, success stories. One was someone uh, from a federal agency. The first search they ran was someone from the most wanted list. And they could find them on the lam since 93. And they could find uh, a lead to them uh, from, from photos. So it's been you know, very accurate so far. So it's a neural network. So it's trained on a lot of examples. Uh, so it can learn to ignore things like the beard and the glasses, things that are Have aren't you had instances where people are repeatedly mistaken for a criminal? We had this with the databases after 9-11, the, do not fly, the famous do not fly list. Somebody's name would be Mohammed and some other common last name. And they would be a professor at a university, but they happen to have the same generic John Doe type name except of a, an ethnicity of, you know, people from Saudi Arabia, let's say, that were involved in the, the 9-11 attacks, the murders. Um, and they would get mistaken over and over and over again. They'd be like, listen, I know my name is Muhammad, but I'm not that Muhammad. Do you have that yeah. issue with facial recognition or not, where people repeatedly no, are false yeah. positive? No, we don't. What's great about it is uh, there's a lot of common names out there, a lot of Jasons, a lot of Muhammads, but with a face, it actually just does purely matching on the face. So if there's no similar match in the database, it turns up zero results. So a lot of the times they're running a photo and it actually gets zero results. We'd rather not give a false positive. So we've been, we think it's a great tool. In these kind of things, if your name's Mohammed and someone's on uh, the treasury list of, you know, or a terrorist list and they get detained at the airport, it's not a good experience at all. And we don't want that to happen. I think facial rec is a great tool to help like, again, you know, catch the bad guys, but not get false positives. Who do you come up against as a competitor? Is this something, isn't this what Palantir, isn't what you're doing a subset of what Palantir does? Like, they just provide people with intelligence on how to find people on the web and public yeah, data? Is that who you come up against? No, we, we, we're in a very unique spot because we're such a new product. And uh, we have this, these legacy competitors in facial recognition, um, that, that sell products that aren't that accurate. Uh, but Palantir they, doesn't provide this product? You no, sure? they don't have anything like it. Yeah, they have, they have more data-related products, and they do a lot of um, custom uh, things for different agencies, but it's more name-based or entity-based when we're doing things purely on the face. And so uh, what about real-time facial recognition? Could a police officer's camera on their dashboard be watching people cross the street in real-time with your software and just tell them who that person is in order to find a suspect who committed a, a homicide the night before. And you're like, I think this person's still in town. So we're going to park 10 squad cars with this software and in real time, watch everybody go by to see if we have a match. Yeah, we don't have any real time surveillance. This is all after the fact, you know, the person has done something wrong. You're looking at surveillance footage, then you run the photo. Got it. So you don't do real time. Isn't that the holy grail? Is there is there a real time outside of like, let's say the Chinese Communist Party's real time tracking of their citizens? I think some people are offering it and there's oh, been really? some tests. Yeah. In the West, I think UK has a real time uh, surveillance thing, but it's not something we do. So does it work? Is that is that harder to do than what you do, the real time? Um, depends. You know, you have to have, it depends on the algorithm and it depends on the placement of the cameras, but it's something that uh, I think does work, yeah. 
So is that what happens when we all go through customs? There's cameras everywhere. When we're sitting there um, online and they're doing video of us and we're going through, um, even if you're going through quickly, it's taking a picture of you, putting it into the database and attaching it to your passport? I think there's some systems already like for entry exit that just yeah. match your face to the passport to make sure it's the same. Right. Uh, that's all they do. Do you think they're keeping like a record of like every time I've gone through it? So they have 20 pictures of me. So they have like, now they have their data set to match to the one photo on my passport. Uh, I'm not sure how those systems work actually, but uh, I mean, it, facial rec's been around for a long time, right? I think about 20 years. And now it's just got to the point where it's super accurate. Um, and we have a big breakthrough here. Do you believe uh, police should have the ability to, let's say, go to a concert or, uh, you know, a train station if they're looking for a perpetrator and just take everybody's photo and then just run every photo against the database? Should police be about not to you that yes or no? Um, it's a good question. I think there you have to balance the privacy trade-offs between uh, the, you know, catching the criminals. So I what would you do? do? What do you believe? Your what personal believe? belief, yeah. My personal belief, I think that the police should have the, the right tools, but it should be balanced with any kind of like auditing and stuff like that. So there's no abuse. So in this case, you believe way. police should be allowed to take a picture of every person coming into a subway station if they were looking for a murderer, check it against the database. Even if there's no probable cause for any of those people, they're just doing a dragnet. You believe yeah. that that's in the best interest of society. Well, I right now you I think personally. what police do personally, yeah. I think that the right now police what they do is they look through footage. Say, for example, the Boston bomber, right? Correct. Uh, a classic case. They they had his photo. They put it uh, out there, and there were so many people misidentified um, from that photo. People would send in tips. They mm. couldn't find him for seven days, fourteen days. And here in New York City, there was the pressure cooker case. Same kind of thing. Some guy left pressure cookers at the subway, and you know, with the use of our tool. Many different agencies ran his photo and found him in less than an hour. Oh, they used uh, your so, tool for that one? Yeah, we had uh, multiple agencies run the photo and matched to a previous arrest record of him. Uh, wow. Yeah. And so that's the difference between the technology. Okay, when so something that's when you happens, have a picture of that. But the, I guess the, the nuance here that I'm trying to get at is if... if and and it's hard to use the Boston bombing case or 9-11 because the magnitude of the suffering and the pain and the terrorizing nature of it would lean everybody to say, or any reasonable person to say, we have to catch those people before they harm more people. And it's understandable. It's sort of like the somebody's got a nuclear bomb. It's about to go off. Do you believe in torture or not if the person knows mm -hmm. the location of the nuclear bomb? Putting aside that edge case. In a general situation where a homicide had occurred, should the people who go through that train station all have their privacy uh, compromised in order to catch that criminal? Sort of what I'm getting I at. Think, and you believe think, yes. Yeah. No, I, I don't think so. I think there should be probable cause before you do anything, right? Got it. So then so, probable cause so means the, what in this instance? You, so if, for example, someone is running out of the subway after committing the act and the police it. officer is going through the footage and they're like, oh, I think that's the guy. We think he, he matches a description, but we don't know who he is. All we have is the face. Let's run the face. It wouldn't make sense to run everyone's face in real time. That's not really the society we want to live in. Got uh, it. So the real-time nature of it makes it bad because why? 
yeah, it's more of a dragnet, um, like you said before, but also we want to build technology that fits into our society and how we want to live. So in China, there are no, there is no rule of, there's no probable cause, there's no like legal system, there's no checks and balances. Here, there's a presumption of innocence. So I think that in order to make this technology work for Western societies, the way we've approached it as after the fact crime solving and only searching public information, it really fits in because you can't just take technology and just, you know, apply it somewhere else and make sure it work. You have to really fit in with the system. So, so we're thinking through like, this, this homicide case, the detective could say, give me the today. They could say, give me the tapes of, you know, we think that this murderer takes the R train at, you know, uh, you know, uh, the uh, 18, the 69th Street Station in Brooklyn. Let's take the video of the last five days and we'll give it to an intern or a rookie and say, just look for this description, a white male with blonde hair who's uh, six foot two. And they would just find each one of those, clip them, then run it through your software to look for them. As opposed to just taking the video having the video auto clip every best shot of a face and running everybody through it and saying, here's everybody who goes through that station. And then we're going to but talk hey, to those people because we know this person has to get to work at this time. Sure. I mean, if you're a detective, you're trying to be efficient, right? Right. You're not trying to like look at everyone and question. You don't have time to question everybody. What this can really do is narrow down the possible set. It really doesn't expand the possible set of suspects. It narrows it down. If you're a detective, you're smart. You realize, okay, this is the time he's got, you know, back and forth to work. In a lot of cases, using something like Clearview AI narrows down the possibility set. It doesn't really expand it because. Right. But could they do that? Can they? Can you upload a video clip and say just pull all the faces from this video clip? Is no, that the feature a, of the software? Images right now. So just you take, images. Yeah. Uh, you, you upload an image, so it's not it's not something where you're trying to do a dragnet. The detective, their job is to actually find the person, so they rely on a lot but of. But sometimes other they might want to find the witnesses too. So I exactly. wonder if find if you said, "Hey, listen, this homicide occurred." At this time, 8.05 p.m., I want everybody in and out of that station in the hour before and the hour after. And they took the video, they clipped it, and they just got all of the possible witnesses, and then they went down the list. In society, we would be okay with that or not okay with it? Would you be okay with that or not okay with that? There was a murder on your subway station by your house. They, You happened to be there an hour before, and your spouse was there an hour later. And both of you got pulled into questioning because you're possible witnesses. Would that be good or bad in your mind for society? I mean, if it leads to solving a crime, then it's obviously a good thing. And I think there's a lot of cases where people could be wrongfully arrested, right? You got the wrong guy, and now it's maybe some theoretically a defense counsel could get footage and say, hey, I can identify that witness and bring him to the stand. So it's about finding the truth. And it's about um, protecting the innocent, but also catching the bad guys. So in these kind of cases, detectives, are, they're trying to narrow the possibility space down. They're yes. not really trying to expand but it. Here's the point. thing, though. if Do They, they, they have, have a fixed amount of time. You keep bringing that exactly. up. And I think that's yeah. like a very astute observation. So what technology will allow them to do is instead of having the witness spend the afternoon looking through mugshots, mm -hmm. which leads to a lot of false uh, identifications because they're like here's a here's a book of people who've committed crimes pick one that ma that pick the one that most matches the person who robbed you it's like is that real that's kind of leading the witness right to give them a stack and that's why people become repeat offenders in some cases is they're just they're already in the system but this makes a detective bionic if they could use software to clip every shot 
then run every shot, they can do more with less time. So it actually expands the range of what they're able to do while compromising on the margins people's privacy. I think that's well, probably actually, the real world reality of this. The reality is that uh, police departments uh, over there's too much work to do. There's so much crime. They don't get to all the cases they want to get to. For example, the financial fraud case that I mentioned before, 35 million recovered, uh, 19 people, and they got it from uh, ATM photos. They would have not been able to close any of these cases. There's stacks and stacks of cases, unsolved things that are sitting there, uh, and they're able to go through them more efficiently. So I think overall it's very, very positive. In terms of tricking it, wh what have you learned in terms of people trying to trick the trick facial recognition i mean people have tried face paint uh, for us it still works most of the time uh people have tried all kinds of stuff uh but yeah it's very very accurate you know huh just i know this is really james bond ish does people given your data set if i said show me everybody who's had a nose job and what date you think they had it on <laughs> you'd be able to actually do that you have all these photos yeah. of me you could figure out when i had my nose done Probably not at this stage, but yeah, it's just it's just a search engine for faces. We're not doing anything super sophisticated like that. And so I wonder if this like whole James Bond villain of them people getting facial rec getting plastic surgery actually does defeat the facial recognition. Has um, that happened where people committed a crime and then went and undergone facial? I wonder if there's a case of this. There must be in the world where some criminal who aren't always the brightest people, but yeah, I went think and got like a massive facial reconstruction surgery in in fact to be obscure in the future yeah it's i know possible. there's a colombo episode with this <laughs> <laughs> it's possible and i think that you know some very sophisticated criminals would do that but for the most part you know it's a lot of pain to go through facial reconstruction so not everyone's uh, going to do that and uh for your company uh we had San Francisco ban the use of facial recognition, I believe. Maybe Boston did too. What's the state of local municipalities saying we're going to preemptively ban the use of facial recognition technology? Yeah, there's a few local municipalities, San Francisco, Somerville, Massachusetts, maybe one other, Oakland, that have banned the use of facial recognition for law enforcement. But we see that most of America, most communities, they want to stay safe and they're okay with the use of this. So in Oakland and San Francisco, I don't think San Francisco is number one in crime, by the way, so congratulations. Um, yeah. So we made this official ban, I think, last year in May, and th they made it pre they preemptively did this. Uh, mm -hmm. What was their, what was the impetus for this, do you know? And, and, and Yeah, a lot of the impetus is around the accuracy of the technology and potential misuse. And I think we address both of those completely. Um, but they're they basing it off really old facial recognition algorithms that aren't accurate. And I think a lot of uh, fear and hysteria around the use of this technology without thinking about the upsides. I mean, San Francisco has a big crime problem. A lot of other cities do. And if anything can bring it down, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that the Oakland Police Department, the San Francisco Police Department, where we have massive numbers of break-ins, stabbings, murders, violence, would not want to keep, uh, would not want to be able to recognize who committed those crimes. It It's almost, I mean, I understand people are sensitive to the issue, but 
We take mugshots and pictures of people taking crimes. Police do this all the time. They keep a database. Do 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 those police departments, when they are taking those pictures of criminals and trying to build indexes and taking pictures of gang tattoos, are they using some technology like yours to keep an index of these folks and then track them? Most police departments don't, and that's where we can come in and help them search their existing data sets more accurately. But a lot of the things that the police are doing, taking mugshots of people, most wanted, wanted photos. Um, we have pretty funny stories, too, about people just taking a photo of someone who's, un, who's wanted and actually being able to solve the case right away. So you can take a photo of a photo uh, on Clearview. So, yeah, I think that, you know, every city is different when in, with their approaches to crime. Um, but for the vast majority of America wants to stay safe and we can really help with that. And, uh, it's an interesting Pew study actually about the acceptability of facial recognition in the police and law enforcement world, which is about 60 something percent who approve of it. Uh, technology, maybe 30%, uh, and advertising is at like seven or something like that. So the general public is really fine with, uh, the use of facial recognition to solve crime because it's such a good trade-off. When you look at the privacy security trade-off, it's one of the best that's out there. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this in relation to license plate readers. There is open source software out there that does license plate reading. I know this because I was looking into, or there was a thread on a next door where people were talking about in the peninsula, which jurisdictions were using this software and these services. Many jurisdictions right now are tracking all of the license plates that come in and out of their neighborhoods and looking for when a unique license plate happens, they can be alerted. This is a license plate that's never been in the neighborhood before. A license plate that's never been in the neighborhood before could be a rental car or somebody drove up to see grandma. Could also be somebody who wants to rob houses. Could also be an Uber driver. Who the heck knows? But what are your thoughts on license plates are public, right? That's the definition of public. You're driving uh, publicly <laughs> on a public road, should people be able to to keep databases of license plates? And then you would be able to correlate license plates with the driver at some point. Is that on the roadmap for you? What are your general thoughts on license plates? We don't plates? do anything around license plate reading, LPR as they call it. Uh, it's already an industry that's matured. So when you look at the evolution of LPR, it's been around for quite a while. A company, Vigilant Solutions, is a leader for that. Uh, I think 10 years have been around. And they went through a lot of the stuff in the beginning where people were uh, worried about the privacy aspects, but eventually it was adopted. There was some moratoriums for LPR and then everyone came around to it and said, this is a very good tool. So when you look at the, the history of LPR, it's a more mature market. Technology has been around for longer. Um, and overall people are okay with license plate tracking because once you get, once you understand the trade-offs here and the fact that um, they're really locking up some really terrible bad guys that, people are okay with it. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder, I was driving in my uh, Model 3 and the accuracy now of those cameras is insane. And I was just thinking, either Waze, which is, you know, on your mobile phone, on your dashboard, if you had like an Uber-like driver, uh, you know, like a mount, you know, like the Uber drivers have or Lyft mm -hmm. drivers have on their dashboard, which is what I use. It's really great for mm -hmm. not, for keeping your eyes on the road, uh, although it looks dorky in a car. Um those could very easily read every license plate. I mean, you're watching the Tesla autopilot know the difference between a truck and a car, know the difference between a bicycle and a motorcycle and show you, it, it could pick up a cone, like a traffic mm -hmm. cone. Yeah. It could very easily keep a database of every license plate you ever saw. We could have license plates recorded everywhere. And I was just thinking, 
wow, people, uh, if, it, if technology can do this, there must be hackers out there right now that are tracking every license plate on the highway in every different direction. Um, and this technology, the how, how difficult would it be for somebody to set up an instance of a scraper that just took every photo on Twitter, every photo on Instagram? How difficult is it to make a, just a giant database of that right now? Isn't it yeah, an easy I, task? It's still a lot of work to code all this stuff. It's well, coding the algorithm. I'm talking about just scraping yeah. the every Instagram photo. Like it's it's publicly available on the web. Could they stop you? I mean, yeah, maybe it's possible. Um, but we're not doing any LPR stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just talking yeah. about just in general, like um, the concept of a, a a group of three hackers on a weekend project doing a decided they want to scrape Instagram and then put that data set onto Amazon service, mm -hmm. they could do that relatively easy. There are public scrapers out there. There's a public database tool for Amazon. It could be done pretty easily, right? Yeah, I think to get started and, and prototype these things uh, is not super hard. But to build like a really large-scale database like we have uh, and super high accuracy and billions of photos, we have our own infrastructure. and We're not using AWS. Uh, for for all the storage, so that gets the cost down. So to do it well, to do it at scale, is a totally different task. Same with. Do you scrape TikTok yet, and video? Yeah, we don't do any video, but uh, we do a whole variety of different sites. And uh, customers come to us with like suggestions. Ah, uh, so they say, "Hey, get me all the TikToks," but you do you could take a screenshot of a video playing on there, and then just use. That's enough. You don't need a video. Yeah, you don't need full videos. Maybe one day we'll do that, but. Um, we also are at the very early stages of how much information is out there. There is 30 trillion pages on the internet. About one in 10 have a photo of a face on it. So I think with Clearview AI, we're just still at the very beginning of uh, collecting as much information as publicly available. Just thinking about the number of stock images on the web as well. Like there's somebody who has the most images on the web. LeBron James, Jesus. Is there a stock photo, photo model? Who has the most images <laughs> on the, who has the largest, who do you have the largest data set on? LeBron James? Um, I'd actually have to find out. So yeah. <laughs> <I was happy. laughs> uh, so uh, company's profitable now. Company is close to profitability. I mean, you've raised very a, a modest amount, not a gigantic amount. Yeah, we think uh, we have a great business opportunity ahead of us. So after the New York Times story, we've had just so much interest from, what did uh, that do? Double, agent. triple your user base? A pay yeah, customers? Yeah, I, I think it. I think it doubled, it tripled it, something like that, and also so, so leaning into the, the in a in a as a founder leaning into the controversy and having a defined position is the best PR tactic for you guys. I don't think it was a PR tactic. I think we wanted we built what we built, and we have our own beliefs, and other people have different beliefs, and that's what makes life interesting. Uh, but. We're not out to court controversy. We want to be something that's like as good as possible, and um, you know, live up to the highest standards. Yeah, I was just thinking in terms of like what a PR person would advise in crisis communication, which is a thing that occurs, right? And and wouldn't necessarily qualify the New York Times wanting to do a story about it as crisis, um, but it could be a crisis if the story went poorly. So, do you engage a PR firm to do all this for you and try to? think through how to get the public to understand what you're doing and communicate it? Yeah, and then absolutely. what's their advice? I have a wonderful person who helps with uh, PR and she's been a great mentor to me in terms of how to prepare for interviews, how to 
uh, answer questions and all that stuff. But fundamentally, it's something new. What was her advice to you on how to deal with this? Because it's like such a hot topic. Yeah, yeah. to engage. I think it's a very important to engage with people and explain your side of the story. I think there's a lot of people who come in who might be very against it, but you know, after talking to me or hearing outside of the story can understand that it does have a lot of value. So, See, I think important. engagement is the right thing. Uh, some people take the, just don't even respond. I, I, I think we've invited Palantir on the podcast many times. I just don't think they would want me to ask them the questions the way I asked them to you. And you were very honest in your answers to me, even when I forced you to like, hey, answer the question one more time. <laughs> you know, what is it like to have Peter yeah, as an think, investor, right? Yeah. Like you, I can tell you've, yeah, you've practiced answering some questions and- but I was trying to steer you to get to the more real and you got to the more real and I appreciate it. Yeah, that. I don't, I think there's, there's, a, there's a value to engaging and I think uh, that's one thing that, um, that has served us well. I mean, not all the media is positive and it's never always going to be 100% positive. That's like a myth. So, but engaging with people, we've been able to convince a lot of people that this thing is a great tool. It's saving lives, we're saving kids and uh, fundamentally it has a place and a reason to exist. I think that it's important to engage with people who are different from you. Uh, a lot of people in the media have their views. Uh, regulators. Do you find the media is, uh, there's a new term like, um, anyway, they have an uh, agenda would be a negative way to say, it. they have a point of view, they have a position, they have something they're championing. So, you know, do you find that the media is coming with, hey, they've kind of already written the story and now you're just trying to make sure that your view is included in their version of reality. Yeah, a lot of the times they've already had their mind made up. They've already written most of the story, but you can engage with them. And if you're thinking it on a long-term basis, they're always going to be around. We're always going to be around. And so it's just the beginning of a conversation. So I think that a lot of, you have to really ask yourself with journalists is like, can, would they you know, change your mind if you showed them your side of the story? And most of them want to be honest and do that. So I think there's, there's less trust in media now than ever before, but I think part of that is people aren't always willing to engage. So Do, you, do people write stories about you without ever contacting you in the press? They just basically write a story and then you have to go in retrospect and uh, after they've written this, then try to convince them in... Sometimes, but uh, if it's a follow-on story from someone else, but yeah. most of the original stories, they do reach out and we do have a chance to comment. So That's the thing I find weird now is it used to be in my day when I was coming as a journalist, I'm old now, but in the 90s, they said you can't run the story unless you get a comment from the first person. You have to let them know you're doing a story. You have to let them know what facts are in that story. Um, you have to let them respond to the quote. So if there was somebody who had a negative take on it, you want to give them the chance to respond. And now I don't even see that happening. People just write the story unilaterally, pick 10 facts. And I know this because I'll I'll be mentioned in a story and I just get a Google alert. And I'm like, I wonder why the journalist didn't even just, my DMs are open. My email is my first name at my last name. It's literally all over the web. Like it's not hard to get me. And they don't even bother to like say, hey, we're, we're quoting you in the story from your podcast or from this. Wondering what you think of X. You know, they just don't even take the time to do this. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I think so for the most part, they've done it with us, at least for the big stories where they're doing original research. Other people who do follow-on stories might not. But um, it's part of the process, and we have to learn how to deal with it. And it's, I think it's an important thing to do. How do you uh, know your uh, employees are not abusing the system? So, yeah, we make sure that they only use it for testing purposes. So, um, how do you know can, someone like doesn't get compromised and mm -hmm. then, uh, abuse the system? 
Yeah, so we routinely check the audits of our people, making sure they're using it for demo purposes. So an employee might need to use it when they're doing a Zoom demonstration or Google Hangouts demonstration to a potential client. So we give them, these are the images you try and these are the images you use. Um, and so it's very easy to check. So you audit but, all your employees' use of the system. It'd be hard yeah, for absolutely. them to, yeah. Because this is something I don't, you know, people really don't talk about, but we had um, spies from mm -hmm. the kingdom of Saudi Arabia working at Twitter. You must have seen this story, correct? Yeah, it's a fantastic story. Uh, fascinating stuff. How do you know you don't have anybody in your sort of hen house who is a international spy? And do you think about that as a founder? And how would you know? Yeah, I actually do think about weird stuff like that. Yeah, I would think often, so. Right, like organized crime, spies, uh, things like that, where it could be a target. And now that we're out there, they were more of a target. So we've made security a big priority in, in everything. So employees know that you know, they have to follow the highest security practices. We have invested a lot into more auditing, two-factor auth, more things like that to make sure the systems are secure. So it's something we think about all the time now that there's all the scrutiny. We don't want any kind of compromised people going in there and uh, and abusing the system. I was explaining this to somebody and they were like, hey, it's impossible. I said, listen, Alexa, I'm sure Alexa, the um, you know Google, uh, I'm sorry, Amazon uh, audio assistant, I said, I'm sure that's been compromised. To what extent, you know, I'm not certain, but, and they're like, you're just a conspiracy theorist. So I was like, well, here, let me run something by you. Uh, have you ever seen the show, The Americans, where they get compromised on somebody? And then they say, listen, uh, we have this video of you in this compromised position that we're going to publish. And all we want you to do is just go in and change this piece of code or just, you know, download this person's data and send it to us and that's the last thing we're going to ask you to do but what the person doesn't realize is the thumb drive that they asked them to put it on also has a worm that downloads everybody's information or puts in some backdoor it sounds crazy that's exactly what is happening today in silicon valley with chinese spies and spies from the kingdom of saudi arabia and i'm sure we're doing it to other countries yeah, that's the I mean, game and then you as the founder is responsible for if this happens in your company yeah it's true uh we have uh quite a small team. So that's easier when you're smaller, you really know everybody in your company. But as it grows, it's something that we have to be very wary of in terms of, you know, who's uh, administering everything. So CIA and yeah. FBI, like, they must be on top of what you're doing. What's your relationship with the three letter agencies? And do they have these kind of concerns that your information could be compromised, etc.? Yeah, some of them are our clients, the FBI, Child Victims Unit have had a lot of success identifying um, pedophiles with the software and victims of pedophiles. So yeah, we have good relationships with people yeah. in law enforcement. And that was the, that's the real, that's the real thing I get out of this uh, is the stories we have every day, the psychic reward. Like when we were talking to some of these people, we had no idea that they were actually solving really horrendous crimes. One case was uh, in a child pornography oh, video. Yeah. There was, there was an adult male in the background, uh. right? For a few frames and they couldn't find him for six months seven months and they put him through us and they found him on someone else's social media in the background in a mirror working at the gym so they were able to go to the gym wow. and say hey have you seen this guy and the, the and they agent point to has, like, yeah there he is he's on the elliptical yeah no but they, it, the agent had to convince them like uh we don't give out information they said this is for like a really terrible um child abuse case eventually you could identify him. He's now doing 35 years in jail and they saved a seven-year-old oh, girl. Seven-year-old girl. We have thousands of stories like this. So my question to other people is like, 
uh, how many of these bad criminals go away? I, for one, am glad you're out there. I'm glad you reached out to be on the pod. And I commend you for taking the hard questions, even though I asked them two or three times and, you know, I'm not going to let you go on them. I think that it's important that people who run companies like yours mm-hmm. allow themselves to be scrutinized and have an open discussion about what they're doing. And I asked you very granular questions here. And I mm-hmm. give you an A plus on your uh, performance today because I was challenging you with very obscure stuff like the robots.txt or should there be every single person, you know, for one hour before the crime, should they all be there? I mean, you had very thoughtful responses to that. I think it makes me feel better about you being the person running the company because I, you obviously care, right? And thanks. I appreciate it, Jason. And I appreciate that you're asking these harder questions. I think that um, it's been an honor. All right. Listen. Great job on the company. I'm glad you're out there doing this and catching criminals. It's super important. Um, in Amira, just like in Blade Runner, by the way. The, in Blade Runner, that's how they found uh, one of the replicants. It was uh, somebody in a mirror at a... Oh, yeah. You remember when he was using the... It was, it was the original scene. Decker's in his apartment, and he says, mm-hmm. you know, trim, go left, go right, zoom in, zoom out. And he's zooming in and out with that, like, system that goes mm-hmm. clack, 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 and you're like... It's pretty funny that the system's got like a mechanical clack, 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 clack to zoom <laughs> in on a photo like it's using like a, a steam engine or something. But he, that's how he, that's literally what happens in Blade Runner. Um, yeah. All right, listen, great job. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the pod. And uh, we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups.